I don't know, maybe one of your all's wedding days was a little bit like that. A little chaotic, a little, uh, a little crazy. Things don't always go according to plan. Uh, and sometimes that, that, that just reflects marriage, doesn't it? That just reflects life sometimes. Uh, you know, we're calling this series InstaFam, Snapshots of a Thriving Family. But we know that families, great families aren't made in an instant, are they? It takes time, it takes effort, it takes a lot of work, but it's worth it. And God has given us a picture in the Bible of what a thriving family looks like. We just need to do a better job of taking a closer look at it. And that's what we're going to be doing in this sermon series on InstaFam. You know, we've all heard the expression, a match made in heaven, right? Or a marriage made in heaven. We've heard that said before. But that's not very realistic, is it? Because there's no such thing as a perfect marriage, is there? Anybody here have a perfect marriage? Be honest now. You're in church. You're in church. There's no such thing as a perfect... Let me go ahead and take the pressure off of you. There's no such thing as a perfect marriage. But at one time, there was a marriage made in paradise, wasn't there? At one point, that that was a true thing. There was a picture-perfect wedding, and it's in the second chapter of Genesis. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Let's look at verses 18 through 25. The Lord God said, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Truer words never spoken in the Bible, were they? It's not good for a man to be alone. Now the Lord God had formed him out of the ground, or or, sorry, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. In the Garden of Eden, life really was perfect. Adam and Eve are the only two people for whom happily ever after was actually a possibility. The marriage rate in the Garden of Eden was 100% and the divorce rate was 0%. It was perfect. But then that sly serpent whispered his lies to the happy couple. And they rejected God's plan for their lives and really for the whole world. And everything began to unravel. And with sin came all the problems and the wretchedness of its curse, including problems at home. And really, marriage from that day on resembles more of a war movie at times than a fairy tale. Marriages today are a far cry from that first marriage made in paradise. I mean, we've all heard the divorce statistics, right? You know, the the, the statistic that 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And that was true in the 1980s. But thankfully, the good news is that the, the divorce right now is only 40%. So thankful for small favors, right? In fact... On a per capita basis, divorce rates today are significantly down from where they were in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. 
Now, as I thought about this, I wondered, is this because men and women have just developed such better interpersonal skills like communication and conflict resolution? Is it because there are fewer affairs today than there were in the 70s or 80s? Unfortunately not. The reason there are fewer divorces today, sadly, is because there are fewer marriages today. That's the reason. Rather than get married and risk divorce, people just aren't getting married. They're living together instead. In fact, marriage rates are lower today in the United States than at any other time since 1870. That's including during wars and the Great Depression. That's how low the marriage rate is today. So, whether it's the couple that gets divorced or the couple that just cohabitates without getting married either is a far cry from what God intended. But here in Genesis 2, God reveals for us His intentions and His goals for marriage. The principles taught here will go a long way in helping us to develop marriages and families that are thriving. So let's look into the text and let's see what makes a marriage made in paradise. The first thing we see here in verse 18 is the intention of God. The intention of God. And it begins with God's concern. As I said, the Garden of Eden was was a place of perfection. It was a place of unspeakable beauty and wonder. It was a perfect place where God and humanity and all of creation lived together in perfect peace and harmony. It was a good place. In fact, seven times in Genesis 1, God calls His creation good. When He creates humanity, He says it's very good. But then in Genesis 1.28, for the first time, or sorry, in Genesis 2.18, for the first time, God says something is not good. He looks at creation, His good creation, and He sees something that's not good. What is it? When God looked at His creation, He saw that Adam was alone. He was the only one of His kind. There was no counterpart for Adam. Now that Hebrew word alone carries with it the idea of being cut off, of being a piece which is isolated from the whole. Think of like a, a puzzle piece missing the rest of the puzzle. That's what that word alone means. Now, this is not to say, and don't hear me wrong, this is not to say that a single person is somehow an incomplete person. That's not what I'm saying. It's not just that Adam didn't have a wife. It's that Adam was truly alone. He was the only human being on the planet. Humanity needed both men and women to be complete. It's not just that an individual needed a mate. We as a species needed each other. It's not always God's will for someone to be married. Jesus was single. Paul was single. There are times and circumstances where God can better use someone who's unattached, who's single. And I'm going to be preaching on singleness later on in this series. In the meantime, if you're a single adult, I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 7 to see what Paul has to say to you. But in general, just generally speaking, God finds that it's not good for people to be alone. We were created for relationships. That was God's concern. So then God's conclusion was that, uh, that, that He needed to provide a helper for Adam. Now, that word helper means one who assists another to reach fulfillment. One who assists another to reach fulfillment. Just as the word alone speaks to being cut off and incomplete like a missing puzzle puzzle piece, the word helper 
speaks to the idea of one who completes the picture. That's what the helper does, completes that picture. And this helper had to be suitable for the man. In other words, the helper needed to correspond to the man as his equal. The man and the woman were created as equals, both bearing the image of God. God is going to give Adam someone who will fill up that which is lacking in his own life. You know, in in the words of Jerry Maguire, Adam needed somebody who would complete him. And that's exactly what God gives him. And that's one of the benefits of marriage. The husband and the wife complement one another. For example, men, we know that we tend to be right brain creatures. We like to analyze stuff. We like to figure stuff out. We always want to fix whatever the problem is. While God has gifted women with the ability to use both sides of their brain at the same time. That's amazing. And so women are much better at seeing both sides of the coin. Men, we just want to fix things. Women want to feel things. And that's okay. That's how God created us. We need each other. If there were only men in the world, guys, let's face it, there'd be less compassion, less understanding, less caring, less essential oils, and a lot more emergency room visits. Amen? I mean, that's, that's the world we live in. Women make up that which we often lack. And when they come along with their left brain firing on all cylinders, and they point out how narrow we are, and they point out the things we refuse to see, it becomes clear that God has given them to us to complete us, and to complement us, and to give us the insights that we otherwise wouldn't have. That was God's intention. A complete Humanity, men and women, complementing each other, completing each other. And thankfully, it still works that way today. Despite what some in our culture want to tell us, there is a difference between men and women, and we should celebrate those differences. We shouldn't apologize for them. We shouldn't try to erase them or, 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 or hide them under a rug. We should celebrate how God has created us, male and female. Amen? I mean, it's a gift. It's a good thing. So that is the intention of God. But that leads us right into this next part, the incompleteness of man. The incompleteness of man. And we see here in verses 19 through 20 a desire shaped by God. God has shaped this desire for Adam. Look with me again at verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air, and He brought them to the man to see what He would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. Now, why did God do this? Why did God have all these animals pass before Adam so he could name them? Was it merely an intellectual exercise? Or was God's goal something far deeper? I don't think it's just that Adam was bored, and so God just needed to give him you know, something to exercise his brain. I don't think that's what it was. I think the goal here was to awaken in Adam a desire for companionship. As Adam saw all these animals pass by, he noticed they all had mates. And Adam became painfully aware that he was the only creature who seemed alone. This was God's way of giving Adam, of of arousing within him this desire for companionship. He was showing Adam his incompleteness. Now this means that whenever a human being has a desire, a desire awakens in someone to, to look at the opposite sex with interest, 
That's a good thing. That's a God-given desire. God has given us that desire deep in our heart for companionship with the opposite sex. Now, moms and dads, I understand we don't like to acknowledge this desire. There's a part of me that doesn't ever want to face the reality that someday daddy will not be enough for my little girl. I always want her to be my little girl. But it is God's design that someday mom and dad just aren't enough. That's a natural part of the transition from childhood to adulthood. And there comes a time in every normal, well-adjusted life when a person begins to feel that yearning to find a member of the opposite sex and settle down and begin a family of their own. That's how God intends for life to work for humanity. It's a desire shaped by God. But you know what? God is never going to shape a desire if He doesn't give us a way to satisfy that desire. So next we see the, the, a desire satisfied by God. God is always going to help us to find His way. He's going to provide a way for us to fulfill every desire that He ever gives us. Our problem is when we want to get ahead of God and satisfy that God-given desire in our own time and way. Right? That's when we begin to short-circuit God's plan and we get ourselves into trouble. But here, in Genesis 2, we see the way it should work. And this desire for companionship arose in Adam's heart, and as it did, God was there ready to meet that need. Look with me at verses 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh... Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So first we see that God put Adam to sleep while he did his work. You know, Adam had it easy, right? I mean, mean, he didn't have to get anybody to fix him up. He didn't have to go on any blind dates. He didn't have to risk the pressure of asking a girl out and be rejected. Well, Adam had it easy. Well, I guess you might say that God fixed him up. And it wasn't a blind date, it was just a blind marriage, right? But, but the point is, you know, Adam had it, he didn't have any competition, right? No competition. Nobody to turn Eve's head. Seriously, God handled all the details for Adam. Adam was totally uninvolved in the selection process. Now, of course, people today don't have it quite that easy, do they? But there's still a truth in this passage for those of you who are looking for that future spouse. Rather than worry and stress or rather than settle for less than God's best for you, be patient. Trust God. Don't worry. Prayerfully seek His will. And make sure that the heart that you're pursuing is pursuing the heart of God. That's the principle for us today. You know, if God can be trusted to save your soul, can't He be trusted to find that person that He wants you to spend the rest of your life with? Well, the second thing is that while Adam was sleeping, God performed the first surgery. God removed one of Adam's ribs from which he was going to make Eve. Now, if you've ever had surgery, you know that surgery is no walk in the park. Even what people call a minor procedure, it's only minor if it's not happening to you, right? Every surgery involves pain. It involves discomfort. There's a cost to it. And the same is true of marriage. You see, marriage forces us to think of someone else. It forces us to consider someone else's needs before our own. It makes us 
sacrifice something of ourselves for the one that we love, and that's painful. And that's uncomfortable. And that comes with a cost. But it's worth it. Just like the pain and the discomfort of surgery is worth it when it brings healing, when it brings new life, marriage is just as much worth it. Now, you may be wondering this morning, you know, David, do you really think God literally took a rib from Adam to make Eve? Well, I'll answer it this way. If I believe that God literally spoke the universe into existence, if I believe God literally took the stuff of earth from which to make the first man, then why would I have a problem believing that, Adam took, that God took a rib from Adam to make Eve? Right? Why would I have a problem with that? He's God. God can create whomever, whatever, however He wants, right? Did God have to make uh, Eve from Adam's rib? No, He didn't. But I believe that He did. And I believe that He did it that way for a reason. Because there's powerful symbolism at work here. And I tell this to every couple that I perform a, a wedding for. I tell them that God was painting a picture of the marriage relationship. God didn't make Eve from Adam's head to rule over him. He didn't make Eve from Adam's feet to be trampled on by him. He made Eve from Adam's side to be his equal. From under Adam's arm to be protected by him. From close to Adam's heart to be loved by him. It shows us God's intention for humanity. That He made us to need one another, to be in relationship with other people. It also shows us man's incompleteness. Adam needed Eve to be complete, to, to do all the things that God had given Adam to do. God created us in His image, and like Him, God created us to desire to be in relationship with other people who share that divine image. That's how God structured His creation, and I believe nothing better expresses or facilitates that divine image in the context of human relationships than the invention of marriage. That's the next point there. We've seen the, the, the intention of God. We've seen the incompleteness of man. Now let's look at the invention of marriage. Because, as Ben said, marriage was God's idea. God created it. He invented it. And here in Genesis 2, we see the very first wedding. And I want us to notice three important aspects of that first wedding. And none of them involve cakes, photographers, flowers, or Pinterest. Right? These are the essential elements of what constitutes a biblical marriage that reflects God's glory and empowers us to have families that thrive from the very beginning. The first is that marriage involves a response. We see that in verse 23. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So when Adam woke up, the first thing he saw was this brand new, absolutely beautiful, totally perfect woman standing right in front of him. And Adam's response was, Yes, this is someone like me. Yes. In other words, as one theologian put it, he said, Hello, darling. Nice to see you. All right, so maybe it wasn't Conway Twitty, but it was the first recorded human speech was a love song. Think about that. Whether it was country music, I don't know, but it was a love song. I mean, Adam is saying, finally, here is one I cannot live without. Here is one who is compatible with me, a true partner with whom I can fulfill God's command to be fruitful and increase in number to fill the earth and subdue it. And really, this is the first ingredient of every marriage, that element of heartfelt love, that certain knowledge that this is the person 
that you can't live without. That this is the person that God has brought to you, has prepared for you, and has prepared you for them to spend your, the rest of your life with them in an exclusive partnership of love and submission. In other words, marriage should never be something entered into lightly. It should be prayed about. And it should be strictly observed according to God's Word. Because if God's commands concerning marriage are ignored, then that marriage is, is destined for trouble. Biblical marriage involves a response, a yes, a commitment to that person that God has given you. Marriage involves not only a response, but a responsibility. We see that in verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Adam goes on to say that a man should leave his parents and cleave to his wife. And this is a two-step process that I think every couple should consider this morning. Even if you've been married for 50 years, I want you to think about these two aspects. First of all, what does it mean to leave? To leave his father and mother. What does that leaving represent? It means that you place your marriage above every other relationship in your life. Except, of course, your relationship with God. But every human relationship, your marriage comes first. The husband and the wife are more than just domestic partners. They should be each other's best friend. Moms and dads, this also means that you, you've got to prioritize your marriage above your parenting. That means that you cannot let your, your relationship with your spouse suffer for the, for the, at the expense of your children. In fact, the best gift that you can ever give your children is a strong marriage. And the more your love for their mom or dad thrives, the more they will thrive. So that marriage relationship comes first. Leaving also means that every activity outside of the marriage relationship needs to take a back seat. This, also, this, this applies to business. It applies to careers. It applies to sports and hobbies. It even applies to church activities. Every activity outside of that marriage relationship needs to take a back seat to that relationship. Because God has told us that He will hold us accountable to how we prioritize our relationship with our spouse. That's what Malachi 2.14 is about. The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. God will hold you accountable to how you prioritize your marriage. That's what leaving is about. But what's cleaving about? What does it mean to cleave? That's what some translations say, you know, to, to cleave uh, to his wife. To cleave means to adhere to, to stick to, to be bound together by a strong Bond And cleaving isn't instant, y'all. It's a process, a lifelong process. It begins at the wedding altar and it continues to the deathbed. Cleaving is about total, absolute commitment to one another, which is something sadly lacking in our world today. And that, I think that's one reason why marriage rates are declining and more people are choosing just to live together. Because they think, well, you know, we're going to try this out for a while and if it doesn't work, then I'll just find me somebody else. And that's a far cry from what God intended when He created men and women and, 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 and structured how they were to live together. We need to understand, especially young people, understand cleaving is not a passive thing. Cleaving doesn't just happen. It's the result of hard work. A marriage is only worth the effort you put into it to maintain it or to save it. That's what your marriage is worth. And when people just cohabitate, 
There's no commitment. There's no leaving. There's no cleaving. There's nothing to maintain. And therefore, there's no effort. And if there's no effort, you have to ask yourself, how much worth is there really in that relationship? The Greek word for cleave that's used in the New Testament is even stronger than the Hebrew word. It carries with it the idea of sticking like glue. Picture two pieces of cloth that are glued together or two pieces of metal that are so welded together so strongly that the only way you can take them apart is to do significant damage to each other. That's what that word cleave means. And if you really believe that the two become one in marriage, then you have to believe that anything that tears those two apart does serious damage to both and to their entire families. So if you're married, you're not just a couple. We like to use that word a couple. They're a couple. When you're married, you're not just a couple. You're a family unit. You have become one. God has declared you joined together until death separates you. And I think if more couples took that seriously, it would transform homes and communities and churches and our nation. If couples thought of themselves as a single body, if they loved one another as they do their own bodies, which Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, I think divorce would be just as serious and just as much to be avoided as an amputation of your arm or leg. Right? I mean, if you thought you were going to lose your arm, you would do everything in your power to save it, right? What if we treated marriage that way? Now, this morning, if you've experienced divorce, I, I, I know this can be a difficult topic to hear about. And I want to ensure, assure you that I have nothing but compassion for you in my heart. And in a few weeks, I'm going to talk about how we can think biblically about divorce. But for now, I want you to know that while divorce was never a part of God's plan, and divorce always falls short of God's will for us, we also have to acknowledge that none of us live in paradise. And that life and relationships are messy and broken. The Bible's clear. God hates divorce. But in the Bible, God also makes allowance for divorce. Now, that doesn't mean God sanctions it. But that means that God is well aware of our frailty. Divorce is not some unforgivable sin. Okay? And so no matter what has happened to you, no matter where you've been or what you've done, I want you to know that God loves you. And that God longs to forgive you and He longs to heal you. And I'm going to say more about this in a few weeks. Marriage involves a response. Marriage involves a responsibility. And finally, marriage involves a righteousness. Look at verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Adam and Eve were naked, but they weren't ashamed of their nudity. This simply drives truth for us, drives home for us the truth that the only valid arena for sexual, sexual expression is within the marriage relationship. Don't, don't listen to the world's lies about sex. It's twisted ideas of, of, of those relationships. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. I don't think I can make it much clearer than that, do you? God takes sexual purity very seriously. And He isn't going to change that because of popular opinion. Thankfully, God doesn't run the universe based on polling data. What was true when the Bible was written is still true today. Amen? Human nature hasn't changed. God's nature hasn't changed. 
Nothing has changed except for the, the mores of our day. That's the only thing that's changed, and God doesn't pay any attention to that. Nothing has changed in how God designed human hearts to flourish in relationship with each other. If you were honest this morning, and you were to take your marriage, and you were to lay it aside this passage of Scripture in Genesis 2, how would your marriage stack up against one that was made in paradise? If you were to compare it to this on a scale of 1 to 10, where would your marriage be this morning? Or would you have to say that there's some leaving and cleaving that needs to take place in your relationship? Is there some activity or pursuit or priority that is coming between you and your spouse? Maybe it's career. Maybe it's a, a group of friends. Maybe it's, it's a hobby. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's your own pride. Whatever it is, what is keeping you and your spouse from being as one flesh? Husbands and wives, I invite you to take a long, hard look at your relationship and respond together this morning before the Lord. Allow Him to have His way in your marriage. Are there needs in your relationship that need to be addressed today? And if your spouse is not a follower of Jesus Christ, then your first priority, your number one priority, is to pray and work to help your spouse come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the number one thing to help your marriage. And if the sizzle has begun to fizzle, then maybe this morning you need to ask God to, to rekindle the flames that once burned so passionately. Bring your marriage to Jesus today. Let Him fix what's broken. Let Him strengthen what is weak. Let Him take what's good and make it even better. And maybe you're not even married this morning, but you're concerned about that future person you're going to marry. Why not bring that to the Lord today? And if you're a single adult, or maybe you're single again this morning, what areas of your life need to be brought under the control of the Lord Jesus Christ? I want you to understand that God has a plan for everyone here today. That plan for you may or may not involve marriage. But I promise you that God's plan for everyone here today does involve salvation. God's plan for you does involve a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. And that should be our number one priority. Because in order to have a thriving family, you need to first and foremost be thriving in your walk with Jesus Christ. What is God speaking to your heart this morning? How do you need to respond to His love and commitment to you? As Ben pointed out, the marriage relationship is supposed to point us to the relationship that we are supposed to have with Jesus. How does your relationship with Jesus measure up today? Whatever God is laying on your heart, I pray you'll come and respond today. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for what it teaches us about ourselves. Father, marriage can be a, a painful mirror sometimes that we look into and learn the, the truth about ourselves. It does show us our incompleteness. It does show us our weakness. It calls us. It calls us, you know, on the carpet for our, for our selfishness and for our misplaced priorities and, and for our immaturity at times. God, I pray that every marriage in this space or listening on the radio today, Lord, would be strengthened, that that they would become as, as iron sharpening iron to help us all to grow in maturity and completeness in Christ Jesus. 
Father, those in this room today that don't know You as Lord and Savior, I pray first and foremost they would give their heart and life to You today. They would begin that ultimate relationship with You. That, that, that marriage points that covenant commitment that You long to make with each and every one of us. Father, I pray for those in the room today that are divorced, that are single, that are, that are hurting this morning because of what someone has said or done to them in a relationship. And I pray, God, they would find Your grace powerful enough to bring healing to them and to strengthen them and to bring wholeness to them as men and women made in the image of God whom Jesus Christ died for. Father, I pray that You would help us as a congregation to be a safe place where people can come to experience that healing and that hope that is only found in Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.